I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for April 18th, 2019, the Oh My God, This is Terrible, This is the End of My Presidency edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscure. I'm in Washington, D.C., where uh, I didn't run into Bill Barr this morning. John Dickerson of CBS This Morning, I, you have probably been on the air since Barr started speaking since this report came out, so I'm glad you're here with us. Hello, John. Uh, hello and good morning from one bar to the other at the end of the day. It is not the morning. That is, shows how discombobulated you are. It's already afternoon when we're taping. Uh, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. You are also discombobulated. Probably you're in your, your birth city of Philadelphia um, on your book tour. I'm so happy to be in my birth city. I love Philadelphia. Uh, with your best-selling book. That's right, friends. Emily Bazelon's Charge is a bestseller. Thanks for getting it. If you haven't gotten it, go get it. It's great. You guys are the best. On this week's GabFest, the Mueller Report, Redacted Edition, drops. We will have our lightning response to the most anticipated report since uh, maybe the Star Report. Then the White House is adopting a policy of obstructing essentially all congressional records requests, congressional subpoenas. How will this showdown end? Then who, what is responsible for the surge in measles and the drop in vaccination rates? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. What a day. It began with... Attorney General Bill Barr pre-spinning his version of the Mueller report as being lightly redacted and and uh, showing no signs of presidential criminal behavior. The report itself arrived slightly after uh, Barr's press conference this morning, more than 400 pages long, not lightly redacted, significantly redacted. And we have all spent the last couple of hours checking it out, looking at it. So, John, uh, what are your initial thoughts? I know, and let's, I'll, I'll give you let me just bracket the thing I know you're going to say, which is that we all hate the lightning response sure. game. It's right. this thing came out on Thursday. We are taping on Thursday. So we recognize that none of us has read the whole report. We can't have processed the whole report. And so so we're, I'm just get, putting that asterisk on the top of the episode so you don't have to say anything. Okay. Um, thank you. I, I guess I have, I don't know. It's, you know, my. Now you can complain about that. Yeah. Well, right. Though. It is, it is, you know, uh, well, just on to, to that point, the attorney general in the White House um, carefully managed the rollout of this to take maximum advantage of the way the news environment works, which is not the best way in the world. Um, the attorney general gave his second summary. The first summary was the four-page report. He then held a press conference, which was another summary of the findings before people got a chance to look even at the redacted version of it. So he set a frame for the way to look at the inf- information, and people will have to make a judgment about whether the frame he put around the, uh, the information changed the way people thought about it 
in a way that was materially important. And the reason, the way in which it might someday become materially important is, is that we are essentially, there are three venues for evaluating the Mueller report. There is the criminal indictable venue, which is the AG. That's up to the AG. He made a determination not to move forward on that. There are obviously other criminal cases related to Trump behavior, but I'm talking about specifically with respect to this report. Then there's the question whether it's impeachable or not. We'll have to see what Congress decides. But remember, the threshold there essentially is that the Democrats have to get uh, all of their members in the Senate to vote for it, plus 20 Republicans. Pretty high threshold there for this information. And then there's the um, is there anything in the report that is so objectionable or to use Jonathan Turley's phrase contemptible that it makes voters in 2020 decide that they don't want four more years of this president? And so we've seen the attorney general take a crack at kind of the first venue where this would be assessed. And now we'll wait to see the congressional report and then finally what the voters say. One, one just final thing to say about – well, no, let me just shut up there and get Emily's thoughts. So, Emily, what is it that particularly struck you? Are there any facts that you learned or or framing that you saw in the report so far that has, has stuck with you, that is gripping you? I mean, I think that the amassing of facts about obstruction of evidence, even though we know that Mueller didn't conclude that he was going to indict Trump for this, it's pretty um, astonishing, even though a lot of it is familiar, seeing it all in one place and then thinking about the gap between the way the Attorney General of the United States presented the facts and what we're actually seeing. I mean, to just name one example here, Barr said that the fact of Trump's being president, the fact that the Justice Department has said that it doesn't believe that it that it has the power to indict the president, Barr said that didn't factor into Mueller's decision making. But the Mueller report clearly includes that as a factor. And it's just one of a number of kind of astonishing inconsistencies. And I think it's also just worth noting the timing of this. So first, we had a couple of weeks of run-up in which Barr controlled the narrative very successfully. Lots of outlets reported his summary as the Mueller report, as opposed to Barr's summary of it. And it was impossible to challenge his... um, his description of it, because we didn't have it. Then, you know, we spend the morning with his version of events. And so we're all scrambling with less time in the day to actually digest this report, which, oh, by the way, is, you know, between four and 500 pages and is not searchable. So yeah, like the press is going to catch up on this. And I hope we talk about it again next week when we can be, you know, more settled in our conclusions. But in the meantime, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to be rushed, and it's easier to rely on the attorney general's point of view. And I'll be really curious whether there is a discrepancy between, you know, newspaper coverage, cable TV coverage, and Fox coverage of this day in particular. I have a searchable uh, version of it if you want it, Emily. In fact, Slate just posted one. The th- I think you, you – I would just like to reframe this. I, I don't want to spend a lot of time or a lot of my brain space focusing on this, the framing that Bill Barr has done or the president has done. I would like to look at what is in this report and what it what is so extraordinary is not that it necessarily has – radical new information, although as as people dig into the footnotes and as, as smarter people than I read it, I'm sure there will be bits of new information that come out. But m- much of what we see in this report is stuff that was reported or hinted at in reporting uh, that's already been released or was revealed in, in earlier indictments from Mueller and his team. But we have an extraordinary Russian effort on the president's behalf to win the election for Trump or lose it for Clinton, to 
disrupt American politics and reduce confidence in American elections and to divide Americans. That is an incredible effort, an effort that the president's team made no effort to stop. And in fact, at every occasion that they were presented with the opportunity to cooperate with it, they sought to cooperate with it and sought to gain an advantage from it and never to report it and then repeatedly lied about what they did. And then following that, and then a massive repeated effort, I mean, just look at the, the table of contents about this, by the president and his team to obstruct, deny, mislead, lie, deceive about what those contacts had been. So there's been an extraordinary set of crimes committed against the American people and the American government. And we need to, you know, be really panic about that. Because what the Russians did, what they tried to do, what they could again do in a future election was incredibly damaging. And that that first part of Mueller's report uh, is is stunning and disturbing at the at the deepest level to me as a citizen. Can I um I agree with everything you said, and I particularly agree. Uh, how couldn't I with what with your point about let's not um, you know spend too much time on the framing? But one of the key questions which you've underlined and which is at the heart of this is where does the rule of law stand? Just as a kind of a concept in the American situation, and where do we uh, and 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 as the you know as an attorney general, how they behave reflects on the rule of law. And so, at the end of this experience, has the attorney general improved the way people think about the rule of law or not? Um, and so, I think how he characterized the report and the distance between the person who has authority by dint of the job he has. Uh, the distance between what he says about the report and what it ultimately is, I think, matters with respect to the way the general notion of the rule of law exists. And I would just add to Emily's point about uh, Mueller and um, and whether you can indict presidents. Barr also made a claim that the president, quote unquote, fully cooperated with the investigation. But then when you read the actual Mueller report, it says – During the course of our discussions, the president did agree to answer written questions, but he did not agree to provide written answers with questions on obstruction topics or questions on events during the transition. Okay, so that's not cooperating. Ultimately, while we believed we had the authority and legal justification, he goes into talking about they could have subpoenaed him, but they decided not to because they could have – they basically figured they had what they had and it would take too long. But uh, the point is that the president was not fully cooperative, although I'd like to know, Emily, what you think about the both the fact that the president did not assert executive privilege um, with this and that he seems to have allowed his staffers to basically uh, speak freely to the uh, to the special counsel. Well, I think they were holding back executive privilege, hoping they weren't going to have to invoke it. And so that's one way to evaluate how meaningful that is. And I'm really glad you brought up um, the gap again between Barr's description and the actual lack of cooperation. And the rule of law framing is exactly the right one. The fact that we are seeing most of this report is a victory, but there are parts of it we can't see in part because of harm to ongoing investigations, that sort of tantalizing reason for redaction that makes you wonder if there are more shoes to drop, but also what we're not finding out in the meantime. So this report has effectively been laid at the feet of Congress and the American people. It is not laid at the feet of the courts. It's not laid. uh, we, We have these two enormous issues, an enemy engaged in a phenomenally successful campaign to to undermine us and disrupt our the core of our of our political system one and two a president who is manifestly unfit to serve who at every turn has has 
use the might of his office to serve selfish, dishonest ends and corrupt our political system. And I, and I, I and actually there's this, I, I wish that we were able, I wish we were, we had the, the kind of mental fortitude to be able to say, if you, to describe what we've just learned about the president and what we've just learned about the Russians without names attached, without parties attached, if you described what we have just learned about the president to a random citizen who, who had somehow been locked in a box, you didn't say it was a Republican, you didn't say it was a Democrat, every single person who you could describe this to would say, every, every person, every member of Congress, every judge, every fucking alien would say, this is a person who does not, is not fit to hold this office and should be impeached and removed from office. But the partisan system will not allow it. So given, given the, the, the place we are with partisanship, John, what the heck can this report do like is it because everyone's going to go to their corner yeah what is what can this do well that's yeah that's why i was i've sort of been thinking about in these three different fields on which this gets assessed and and this is the second field the impeachment field i mean at the end of the day the house has to make it would have to make an impeachment determination and then you'd have to get 20 republican senators i think um i think basically this goes to the 2020 electorate um and in that instance but and then the, the question as a political matter for democrats is Okay, fine. It'll be adjudicated by the voters. But what role do uh, if you're just a partisan Democrat, how, how do you want that information to get out in a way um, that is orderly and conveys you know the full scope of this, um, which includes we should mention and among the scope of things discussed is 10 instances in which the president actively tried to get in the way of the investigation to misinform. Uh, and that includes everything from ousting um, he tried to get uh, Corey Lewandowski to influence Jeff Sessions to uh, unrecuse himself and affect the investigation um, and to uh, attempts to fire Mueller. There's an extraordinary episode where the White House counsel, Don McGahn, basically uh, says he's ready to pack his bags because the president is so insistent that, that McGahn fire Mueller uh, that he's going to leave. This is just – I should make an aside. Much of the reporting done by the Post and the Times and the Journal, which was called fake and lies and all that, is all affirmed here by the investigation of the report. So much of it was true in real time uh, even though uh, the, the president said it was all made up. So I guess the question for voters will be uh, – or one of the questions could be oh, – there's a lot of detail in this report about a highly disordered presidency. Um, it may not have met the the legal definition for obstruction because that requires intent. And I think there are a lot of instances where you, you could buy the case that the president just didn't want to have an investigation, not because he thought the investigation would find anything, but because he thought the investigation was uh, going to clot up his administration for its entire time. But that's the legal standard. The political standard is do you want a presidency which, based on the Mueller report, is highly disordered and dysfunctional and and breaks – shatters the presidency, as Jonathan Turley point, put it. Do you want four more years of that? So, Emily, one of the – getting into some specifics, I don't know if you had a chance to look at the, the writing about the Trump Tower meeting. Did you get a chance to look at that yet or not? A little bit, yeah. So what's interesting to me about some of the details in this report and in particular the Trump Tower meeting is that – it confirms the the, the 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 report confirms what we've learned in general terms about uh, from from reporting from as John said the Times Post the Journal and others, um, but the Trump Tower meeting actually did I think is a little bit of a um, turned out to be a little bit less than anticipated for the president's critics that it that they'd hoped for something awesome they they wanted something amazing they wanted some truly damaging information about Hillary Clinton they went into the meeting expecting it but there really wasn't any particularly good information. The meeting was a bit of a dud and they lied about it afterwards. 
uh, and covered it up, but that it actually it, it actually expressed a a willingness to try to work with bad actors and and collude with a foreign power, but there was not very much to collude with. So should, is our should our interpretation be uh, good? Few or uh, that was a that actually this shows their their malintent throughout. I mean, I think if you're worried about the willingness of people who are now running the country to, you know, look around for dirt to try to encourage getting dirt, then that is still worrisome. The standard that Mueller was using was this idea of coordination. So it wasn't enough for him that the Russians were offering at certain points and that the Trump campaign was willing and kind of inviting the offers. Mueller also wanted to see them actually like coordinating the whole thing. And it may be that the fumbling nature of these um, efforts to kind of contact each other are what saved everybody in the end. Though, again, we do see all this lying about it afterward and, you know, attempts to sort of cover it up, including uh, the president lying about helping um, or or ha- helping to write his son's um, defense and initial explanation of what this meeting was about, saying it was just like a meeting about adoption as opposed to any effort to get um, information. And so it seems clear that people knew that what they were trying to do was suspicious in a way that would seem damning if people under if people knew what what they were excited about. Um, John, there's this line being much quoted uh, on television, which is where the president said, oh, my God, this is terrible. This is the end of my presidency. I'm fucked when Mueller was appointed. The independent counsel was appointed. And I think people are interpreting that in one way, but actually I'm not sure that's correct. I think some people are saying, oh, this is him. This is a sign of a guilty conscience. Yes. But what he really seemed to be saying is this is going to be such a distraction for my administration, I won't be able to get anything done. And isn't he, in fact, correct about that? Well, yeah. not to say not to say that they, they they don't deserve the special counsel because goodness knows it looks like they were, you know, obstructing and and committing wrong acts all the time. But but isn't he correct that it has been a terrible distraction in the way that he expected? Yes, and I think that's um, and this is an important thing to key on because it it gives you. Uh, it's a test of the way where you sit depends on where you stand. And and so, as you say, as critics think, this is him saying, oh, my God, I've finally been caught. Uh, the attorney general based his basically his entire reason for not pursuing the obstruction case on the idea that the president didn't have the, didn't have the motive. And the motive that was driving him was not, oh, my gosh, I'm being caught, but, oh, my gosh, this is such a – this is going to ruin my presidency because it's just going to be days and days and days of distracting investigation. And one one thing that was interesting about the attorney general's press conference was he basically spoke to the president's motive and said uh, this, President Trump faced an unprecedented situation as he entered office. Federal agents and prosecutors were scrutinizing his conduct before and after taking office. At the same time, there was a relentless speculation in the news media. And what he's saying is that uh, there was substantial evidence to show that the president was frustrated and angered by this his sincere belief that the investigation was undermining his presidency. So this goes to your point that he was sincere in believing this was ruining his presidency and he wanted to stop it from happening, not because he wanted, didn't want to get caught, but because he didn't want it to, to ruin his presidency. Now, one thing that the, the attorney general didn't point out, but is obviously has to be remembered here, is that 
the reason he was getting all this scrutiny is that he and lots of people concerned with his campaign said we had no conduct with Russia in any possible way. And then we found all these instances in which there was conduct. And then the president said he had no business dealings with Russia. And then we didn't find this out until very recently, but we find out that he was, in fact, pursuing a Trump Tower deal. So the president was not an innocent in creating the conditions that then made him feel like a hounded president. So then to use the hounding of the president while the investigation is going on as exculpatory information that goes to his intent, I think is a little tricky. But you're right to focus on that two readings of that poignant moment because I think that gives you a very close reading of how people can see it differently. Emily, just as a, on a last word on this, do you what do you think are the next phases in Mueller Russia investigation? Do you think that we've basically, you know, played out the string here and and there will be this will be much less of a focus for people or do you think that this will continue to obsess people as they pour in a detailed way over the report for for even through the 2020 campaign? I think they'll be um, more interested in this, especially because of the ongoing investigations. We still have to find out what's going to happen to Roger Stone, um, whether Trump's going to issue any pardons. Um, I think there's going to be more mistrust, right? Like everyone's going to revert to their prior beliefs about Trump based on this report. If you like him, you're going to go with his notion that he's been exonerated or at least not indicted, and that's going to be good enough. And you're going to treat the whole thing as this unfair distraction that's still rattling around. And if you think that he's mis- you mistrust him, there's a lot here to mistrust, a lot of dissembling, um, a lot of lying by people who work for him and by the president. And I think John's conception of this kind of distracted, disordered, shattered presidency, uh, the chaos of it comes through, and that will kind of feed the flames. I think the Democrats are probably going to face more pressure to um, from their base toward impeachment, and they're not really going to want to do it. They're going to see it as the electoral remedy being the better remedy, like this is something the voters should decide. They're never going to win an impeachment trial in the Senate, uh, or an impeachment proceeding, I should say, based on um, this report. It's not definitive enough. And it's going to remain out there as this sort of lingering sense that, you know, Mueller was the independent prosecutor. He clearly is expressing a lot of misgivings about the president's conduct, but he stopped short of indicting the president in part because he doesn't think the Justice Department has the power to do that. And then you have this kind of whitewash from the attorney general, which is not good for the rule of law and is going to give a lot of people um, who worry about that role being independent of the president a lot of pause. As a, as a reputational matter, I'm, I'm fascinated by what uh, the attorney general thinks, how he thinks this is all going to play out for him in history. Um, because I think in the settled um, calm of reflection, the distance between the way he presented this report and its ultimate sentence and the ultimate sentences in it will fall on him and his reputation. Um, and I wonder if he thinks, yep, it'll all be work out and just be fine or whether that big distance is something uh, that will he'll be forever uh, remembered for. Final point I would say on the presidency is. This is a picture of the president in um, an extreme moment. And, and again, this isn't Michael Wolf and this isn't speculation in, you know, um, to some anonymous source. This is a, is a uh, highly reported uh, window into the operation of the chief executive in an extreme moment. And so do people think that when he's in another moment where things are extreme – 
is he going to behave like he did here? And does that make them uh, encouraged about four more years or does that make them uh, nervous? Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest, other Slate podcast. Our Slate Plus segment today, we're going to talk about Notre Dame, our memories of it. We will mourn and celebrate the great French cathedral. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. An alarming story in the Washington Post this week confirms what our own eyes have seen, which is that the White House is adopting a policy of blocking essentially any congressional request for any record about anything the White House or the president has done or is doing. This includes inquiries about the president's taxes, about security clearances, about meetings with foreign leaders. The White House is also pressuring banks and accountants that have worked with the president not to comply with congressional records requests. They're even telling every uh, secretary, every department, every every executive branch department not to turn over any records without first checking with the White House. So, uh, Emily, Congress's has a legitimate oversight function. Congress has a job to be a check on the executive branch, which is supposed to execute the laws of the, the land and to, to carry out the laws that Congress has passed. And Congress has the right, indeed, the duty to check on it. So what happens when the executive branch essentially refuses to cooperate with the oversight of the Congress and says it's you know either because of executive privilege or because this is, this is a personal, partisan, political targeting? We are just going to have a big, long slog of a stalemate where we're going to find out the Congress just doesn't have a lot of power. You know, formally, it can hold people in contempt of Congress. But if you have the whole might of the executive branch behind your withholding, um, is Congress going to really seek to put people like in jail if they don't respect a subpoena? I really doubt it. And then there's going to be a big, long slog of a fight in the courts. And the courts hate these kinds of conflicts. They do not want to intervene in a dispute between the other two branches. So it's just going to be ugly. And it's probably going to end up winding, moving the needle toward more executive secrecy and more executive privilege. And that's going to be a problem if you worry about the continuing growth of the imperial presidency. Right. So the ability to procrastinate and delay by the executive branch outstrips the ability of Congress to stop that procrastination delay. Because as you say, the power, so con- Congress has the power to subpoena and has the power to con- compel witnesses to come forth and to compel documents. But, but if the executive branch doesn't comply, they have the choice of putting them in prison, which they haven't done since 1935 and will not do. They have the choice of asking the Department of Justice to prosecute someone who's refusing to comply with a congressional subpoena. But if it's the executive branch itself that's being subpoenaed, they don't want. They're not going to. The president will just say, "Don't, don't bother. Don't do it. We, we're not going to. We're not going to prosecute this person." Or they can go to the courts in a civil action to try to compel that testimony. And that, as you say, is slow, and the courts don't want to be part of it. And what we've seen is this ability uh, in previous ad- administrations, in the George W. Bush and in Obama administrations, there were very small examples of the the executive branch refusing to comply with congressional records requests or or inquiries of various sorts. And it just took forever and took years and years and years. And often 
by the time there was a resolution that the administration was over or the Congress, a subpoena expires with the term of an existing Congress so that that the existing Congress would have stopped serving and so the subpoena wouldn't have have ever taken effect. So it it does seem to me that this is a a battle which the executive branch is basically going to win by attrition, by slowing things down. And John, as somebody who is a student of the system, uh, what happens when Congress is unable to perform its legitimate oversight role because of the bad faith and resistance of of an executive branch that doesn't want to cooperate? Well, they just pave over Independence Hall and move on into. Um, I mean, because it's you, it's. I, I mean, I'm not sure what happens. I mean, I think I think um, uh, this is, of course, what the founders were terrified about. Um, and, um, I think what happens essentially, and what used to keep everybody behaving was those, we've talked about this before, of course, is the, is the norms that existed. And then also the fact that you wanted to someday get along with the Democrats you were ignoring. I thought one thing we should just note in, you know, we've been being pretty tough on the attorney general. And I thought that, um, his, uh, referring to the legislative, the legitimate oversight interests of Congress, um, and his effort to work within those, people may think that's just a rhetorical move. But in the but compared to the president, who rhetorically doesn't think Congress has legitimate oversight interests, um, at least it's a distinction there. Obviously, saying something that you think so, the oversight interests are legitimate is different than actually uh, acceding to those interests. Um, but I don't know. I think what ends up happening is basically this grinds through um, – and it either breaks when Republicans say enough is enough. We, we've got to stand up as an institution. And, and if that doesn't happen, then it changes by a new president of either party who decides to try to run a presidency differently where you work with the other party. And if you want to work with the other party, you don't you don't deny them their voice or their, um, you know, constitutional powers. Oh, my God. It's just not going to happen. I mean, Emily, it's not the Republicans are never going to kind of come along and be like, yes, yes, they should be able to get access to all of those, all of those records. I mean, is it maybe is there a case? Maybe I'm missing it. Maybe I'm missing it, Emily. Is there a case that actually all these requests from Democrats for things related to the president's financial dealings are illegitimate and they should just stop it and focus on health care instead? That, that, well, that's that a, actually those are two different questions, case, I suppose. Yeah, I don't I mean, I think you could make a political case that they're better off focusing on substance and they would probably argue back like both and we're doing both of those things. But legally speaking, um, you know, they're trying to get the president to um, be transparent about things that other presidents and politicians have taken as a matter of course, and they have a statute on their side. So no, I don't think that the idea that like, this is some frivolous lawsuit has a lot of legs. I mean, for for years, I've been complaining about the the supineness of Congress, and everyone has noted that that Congress has, of course, the executive branch has seized powers, but also that Congress has let the executive branch seize power because Congress often did, just didn't want to deal with stuff; they just wanted to let the president have to deal with it and not have to take hard votes. Here, you have a, a Democratic House, at least, that is saying, "Okay, we want to we want to do stuff. We want a confrontation on this. We want to do stuff." And we're standing up for our privileges as a as a body, and they're still not going to be able to get it done because if the executive branch refuses to play, the executive branch refuses to abide by the laws and the norms that have existed for two and a half centuries, they have very little recourse. And that's 
incredibly alarming. It just, I don't know. It just, it feels like a yet another harbinger of a system that is, that is um, irretrievably fucked. There was, I just, before we exit this topic, there was a, a lot of the, the concern about this issue is over the president's taxes. And there is no sign the president is willingly going to surrender his tax returns. Uh, the, sec- the Treasury Secretary refused to supply them when the House uh, Ways and Means Committee requested them as they are entitled to see them uh, the other day. And so there's every sign the president will resist this till the end. There was a wonderful piece by Benjamin Apple- Applebaum arguing that all taxes should be public that everyone's tax return should be public. And that, in fact, when when the income tax started in the 1920s, tax returns were all public. And millionaires hated it so much that they got the law changed. But don't you, do you guys have any sympathy for the idea that everyone's taxes, that everyone should be able to see everyone else's taxes? I love the idea. Yeah, I'm totally into the idea. I mean, I just feel like transparency, we're better off knowing more about other people's finances. It would give us all more bargaining power with our employers if we really understood what other people's taxes and salaries look like. And there's a norm against sharing that information in American culture, and I think it usually hurts workers. Although, on the other hand, if you think of unhappiness as being in part fed by the notion of relative wealth, I guess you could spend a lot of time making yourself really miserable by looking at other people's taxes. Right. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Well, it's true. In Norway, this is the law. You're allowed to see everyone's taxes. If you look at someone's taxes, though, there's a record that you looked at them. Ah, So you have to be able to be willing to to own up to the fact that you're looking at someone else's taxes. Well, I like that idea. And yeah. And some, but someone also pointed out that actually we already have this for one big form of taxes, which is property taxes. Your property taxes, what you owe, and, and the records of that are public, and anyone can look that up at any time. And so, and I think there are states, Wisconsin, maybe one of them, where you can look up people's tax returns. So it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to me totally anathema. And I, and I think it is one of these things which rich people really don't want because they they don't want to be subject to the opprobrium when people learn how much they're making and how much they're sheltering. But uh, but it seems like it would be really good. And and for the reason you cite, Emily, is particularly about um, transparency for salary. Like you look up what your colleague who has the same job as you is, is reporting as, as their income and you discover it's twice what you're making. That's going to be a good bargaining chip for you. Yeah. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, And Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Measles used to affect 4 million Americans a year. It caused severe illness in 50,000 Americans a year, killed 500 Americans a year, often children. But in the 1960s, when the measles vaccine sort of uh, 
went into broad use, it reduced the number of cases in America effectively to zero. Zero, 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 zero. It is true that measles still kills more than 100,000 people worldwide, people who are not vaccinated, but the disease was effectively eradicated in the U.S. And now, thanks to rising pockets of non-immunized children, herd immunity in certain communities, particularly certain conservative insular communities, is weakening, and there's terrible effect to that. So New York is in the midst of the worst measles outbreak in many a year, and so is Washington State. In New York, it is largely confined to the Hasidic Jewish community in Brooklyn and, and a couple of upstate towns. There are certain, for certain reasons, parents have been persuaded that vaccines are dangerous or unkosher. In Washington State, it's been concentrated in a relatively insular uh, Slavic community as well, where vaccination rates are too low for herd immunity to be fully effective. So, uh, Emily, why is this? Why is there a rise in vaccine skepticism and religious exemptions that is then in turn making us vulnerable to to uh, outbreaks like this? Oh my God! Why is there? Why do people believe these like totally bogus? fears about immunization, which is like one of the crucial scientific advances that keeps our children healthy and especially saves the lives of babies who can't be vaccinated for measles until they're a year old. I mean, it seems like the same forces that fear that, you know, vaccines were causing autism and SIDS, the, you know, the idea of babies just dying for no reason in their cribs are kind of back. And they've figured out how to disseminate materials in particular religious communities, including some um, Orthodox Jewish sects that have really taken on a lot of um, social power and kind of themselves spread among parents. And so now we're having stories of parents in Rockland County um, in New York who are hiding cases of the measles when their kids get them because they don't want to get in trouble for not vaccinating their kids, but they're also refusing to vaccinate them. And I, it's such a curious example of people shooting society in the foot, like making things worse for no apparent reason i just find it so baffling and upsetting it is it is literally the most cost effective thing that society that humans have ever invented practically except maybe clean water if you're starting to establish a, a society the first thing you want is maybe clean water the second thing is vaccines and it's it's insane and it's 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 and it's it has to do with this loss of trust in institutions and the loss of belief in shared national values and and the kind of overvaluing of a some kind of a community value over a national or a, or thinking of community in too small terms and not thinking of the 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 broader world that you live in it is appalling uh and i was thinking about this sorry john you're about to say something. well i was just going to say well i was reminded this week that there is i i, I think this is true <laughs> i'm just it's so sh- a 90 percent chance basically that you will contaminate another person if you have it that you can cough and the droplets in the air continue to carry this for hours afterwards so that it's particularly contagious and so you're you're harming you're, the chances you're harming other people is particularly acute uh in this case there's there's this quality of of libertarianism that liber so, so this is a anti-vaccination is where where libertarians and kind of conservative religious people meet up and this idea of, oh, parents should have autonomy to make choices for their children and we should all be free agents uh, to do the things that we choose to do. And where where that nice idea, that idea that we're all 
free and, and should be able to make choices runs up against reality. And you just need to think about like, you know, should, could, if, if 5% of people decided they're not going to obey traffic laws because they have religious exemption, like they don't believe in stop signs, like they don't, they don't like octagons, it would cause pure chaos and misery for everyone. We all recognize that. And there are certain kinds of things where everyone has to participate or it doesn't work. And where the level, the, 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 the cost of participation is actually very, very low. The cost of stopping at a stop sign is very, very low. The cost of vaccinating your children is very, very low. And you just have to accept it if you want to live in an ordered society where people can prosper and where people can be healthy and where babies don't die. And the stupidity of, of people around this is maddening. And I, I just, I, but you can't yell at them. You can't, like, I, I don't want anyone who's an anti-vaxxer to listen to me yelling right now because it's not going to serve any purpose for me to yell at them, even though they're idiots. So. Right. Although I have to say that, like, passing laws, saying that people can't send their kids to school without vaccinating them, um, declaring a state of emergency in Rockland County, all of those tactics by the government seem to me to be warranted. Like, there is real public health crisis here, and it is a moment for the nanny state or just for the state to overrule people's irrational impulses when they put other people in harm's way. It's not a nanny state. The nanny when you when you let them frame it as a nanny state, you've lost the battle. It's not the nanny state. It's okay. like it's, it's like civil it's civilization. State. Civilization yes. is the agreement that we will there's certain things we're going to do in common so that so that we can all thrive and prosper and so that our babies don't die and so that we live longer and that we're healthier and that we we can be in community with each other. I mean think of it as a as a blessing of community, which is if you if other people are sick, if other people you cannot be trusted to be around other people's children because those people are carrying measles because they're unvaccinated, then then communities fracture, isolation increases, there's fragmentation. And so it's actually it's a it's a giving of community. And we should think of it that way and not as this is the state oppressing us with their nanny regulations. That is not what it is. And I like your reframing. Uh, yeah, I do too. 90% of people, um, by the way, continue to get vaccinated for uh, measles, mumps, and, and rubella. Right. Um, True. Now, but I, I just want to reiterate what you were saying before, because as you were feeling that existential um, uh, frustration and rage at people who are basically not following the social compact um, – and I know you started by saying this, but I mean, when you deny the that Congress has any role to look into the executive, um, part of the rule, I mean, there's a social compact that was decided there as well, which is that we will give power to the government and then the government will arrange itself in such a way that it will take good care of the power we give it by separating its power so as not to trample any one branch to trample on our liberty. Uh, so it's the exact same thing where basically someone is deciding that this carefully arranged system that's a part of the social compact, um, that they're not going to maintain it, um, which starts the deterioration of the social compact. And when social compacts deteriorate, you know, then you get into people sharpening their snow shovels and coming after you on the street corner. <laughs> This isn't a very uplifting episode of our show. I feel like we're reaching all these kind of grim conclusions today. Well, it's well, spring. Maybe people should. That's a nice thing it's to th spring. think about. We could come up with some happy chatter. Surely John has some nice loopy happy chatter to offer. You calling me? We'll find you out. Calling me second. loopy? <laughs> Let's go to cocktail chatter mm -hmm. when when you're looking for some sm small sign of hope in the bottom of a glass. John, what are you going to be chattering about? Loopy Finnegan was the uh, was the shortstop for the Yankees in uh, 1947. Um, that's not true. Okay, so. <laughs> hashtag not true. <laughs> 
Um, uh, however, but isn't Loopy Finnegan a great, uh, you know, and Loopy Finnegan's up at the plate. There are two outs, bases loaded. Um, Julian Mortensen, uh, professor of law at the University of Michigan, um, has a uh, paper out, um, which I will admit I've only listened to because the paper wasn't uh, out until this morning, or I didn't get access to the paper until this morning, and it was chaos with um, with the Mueller report. But um, Lawfare, the pod, um, Benjamin Wittes interviewed Julian on uh, the Lawfare podcast, and basically his theory is that when they designed the presidency, the the um, Article Two vesting power um, vested the president with executive power, which was something very different from something called the royal prerogative, and that essentially for all of American history, we have been misreading the power of the presidency, and particularly with respect to the emergency powers through which so much of the presidential expansion has taken place, both in acute moments, but then also after basically the New Deal, the expansion that has allowed the presidency not to just grow for emergencies, but then to just grow and grow and grow. Uh, And Julian's argument is basically that there was a very specific kind of power that the founders could have given the president, the royal prerogative, that they did not and that therefore the presidency is far more limited to basically just executing the laws that Congress passes than any of these other emergency powers that the presidency um, claims that it can um, grab a hold of. So it's just a very uh, – it's worth reading, I'm sure. I'm, I'm very interested in, in reading it. And obviously it's very much at the heart of what of the debates and things we're talking about right now. Emily, do you have a chatter for us? I do. I want to recommend a story in my very own New York Times magazine by um, Rachel Kushner, who writes um, fiction that I really like. But this is a nonfiction piece about a woman named Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who advocates for prison abolition. And Rachel Kushner's piece is just a really interesting exploration of this idea, which I know sounds far-fetched to a lot of people, but just the fact that it's getting mainstream coverage shows, I think, that um, the Overton window is shifting on this issue. Obviously, we are like very, very far from abolishing prisons, and in many ways, that's if you think of that in absolutist terms, it's an impractical goal. But what Wilson Gilmore is really doing is trying to get us to rethink our whole conception of safety and whether harsh punishment really adds to safety. And it's a good piece. Can I, I'm going to do a little bit of log rolling. I promise this will be my last log roll for a while, but my podcast companion to my book, which is also called Charged and is in your feeds, launched this week. And I would be delighted and happy if people listen to it. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I feel like the intimacy of hearing people's voices who I've reported on for so long really adds a dimension to the story I'm trying to tell. Um, so go find it. My chatter is a is a poignant one, and there's no reason for it. It just I was having dinner with an old friend from college this week, and we were talking about another old friend of ours who who we loved, Rosemary Quigley. So Rosemary Quigley was a a lawyer, a medical ethicist, a writer, a traveler, a swimmer. Um, Emily, you you co clerked with her, coincidentally, back yes. in the day. Uh, yes. And she had cystic fibrosis, this terrible genetic disease. It was it plagued her all her life. She was she just fought it like the, a demon. And in 2004, in March of 2004, Rosemary got a lung transplant, which is something that people with, with cystic fibrosis often do. She wrote a slate diary about getting this lung transplant. She wrote, because she was an old friend of mine, I asked her to write it for us, and she was 
you know, she she wrote about what it was like to get a lung transplant as a at a med- as a medical ethicist and as a someone who'd been a lifelong patient and what that experience was like. So she got the lung transplant in May in March. She was married to Jeffrey Harris in May of that year, and then in September of 2004, she died of complications from that lung transplant. So she at, she was 33 years old. She was just a remarkable kind of fascinating person. In any case, she I, I just want to read one part of her diary because I find it I I, I, tr- I come back to this over and over again when I'm sort of feeling like why bother. Um, So she's talking about uh, getting this lung transplant. I've been trying to conjure some philosophical reflections about this experience, given my self-proclaimed professional title of ethicist. But it feels amazingly presumptuous to say anything about what has happened in terms of where fortune has fallen. I know very little about the person whose lungs I now inflate. This is the single most difficult thing for me to contemplate about this experience, even harder than considering my own demise, given that I have mulled that over so extensively. My donor was a 19-year-old killed in a car accident. Her parents agreed to donate several organs, no doubt restoring and saving a handful of lives. Sometimes I think about all the experiences I will be sorry to miss out on in the event of my premature death, a prolonged career, rich marriage, generations of family unfolding. And last week, just walking through a grocery store, I thought of the donor and how she absolutely misses out on all of these. It is a harrowing feeling, but not one that holds me back. I'm not saying I owe it to the donor to make the most of her gift. This would imply that I have control over whether something goes awry with the lungs. If anything, I've learned that such command is fleeting. Faith, on the other hand, goes pretty far, except faith means taking the good outcome the same as the bad one, as something that was meant to be. I have much less confidence nowadays in the idea that if you fight hard enough, you will beat the odds. If only it worked that way. Still, you may as well fight. All right, that was a little bit of a downer. Um, Rosemary was, was wonderful, was, and a, and she would not. And she was just a person who was and a, fu- and a great writer. She's just a person who was just full. Of, she was full of vitality, and she would want us to segue very quickly and energetically to the next thing that we're going to do, which is our listener chatter. So you guys have been sending us amazing, uh, amazing recommendations for things that we should read or look at and and spend time with. And I would encourage you to keep doing that. Tweet to them, tweet them to us at at Slate Gabfest or share them at Facebook.com/slash/Gabfest. And this week. Uh, Ryan McKenzie points us to a very uh, charming Reddit thread about what dishes, if there was, if the, if the presidents of the United States had a communal cookbook and you had to add a dish to it, uh, mm-hmm. what, what dishes would each president add? It is in the, in the way that Reddit threads are basically impossible to follow and are filled with insider information. It's almost impossible to follow this, but when you kind of get to each person's recommendation for what a president should do, it's, it's pretty funny and delightful. So I recommend this Reddit thread uh, about presidential signature dishes. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Audio. And Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. You should follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter at us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. Comment ça va? Never has a French greeting been more appropriate. Uh, comment allez-vous? Anyway, we are. We thought we would t- end up talking about Notre Dame this week, um, but you know, obviously there was a lot of other news, and and lots of other people have talked about it. But it's. Uh, I think. I, I. 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 Well, I wouldn't presume to speak for John and Emily, but it was when when I saw those images and and heard about the the fire. It. It. It was. 
incredibly upsetting and I, not because I had in the way, I don't know. It was just so upsetting. It was, it was the idea that something that is so deeply part of our, the world's cultural heritage that such accomplishment of human civilization could be destroyed. And fortunately it is not destroyed. It's only damaged um, was, was really upsetting. Um, but so we're going to talk a little bit about our own memories or thoughts about Notre Dame, if we have any. So Emily, do you have any experience with Notre Dame or anything you want to say about Notre Dame? I have definitely gone to Notre Dame on multiple occasions and been awed by it. And I think what's so um, upsetting about these moments is, and this is a pretty obvious banal point, but it's the idea of these this irreplaceable history being damaged. And we've obviously had other instances of this. I was particularly thinking of when the National Museum of Brazil burned down and um, I was like, it's just hard to think about the idea that you can lose a whole piece of history. In that case, it was these anthropological records of past civilizations that were gone. One thing that's, I guess, a little comforting about Notre Dame is it had been reconstructed and rebuilt so many times over the ages that we're not losing something that's like thousands of years old and was in any kind of pristine condition. It had already been changed. But I think the way we often consume history means that even relatively recent, like 19th century history feels really old to us. And I never thought that much about the idea that like, oh, these weren't the original, you know, interiors or even exteriors of this amazing cathedral. Like other French rulers had decided they weren't the right style and people had stripped away some of the treasures. It sort of comes to you as this whole and and it just obviously resonates with this political moment where France is having a kind of, uh, you know, broader identity crisis um, and just seems kind of tragic, even though I know it's a building. Yeah. John, what about you? I, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, for me, it's, it's incredibly wounding because I, uh, I have the same feeling about history and I just uh, – every old thing that is kept – um, you know, I I have a strong physical reaction to being around um, old things, and so you add that to the Catholic um, angle, and it's a it's a it was impossible to watch those pictures, which seemed everywhere um, when the burning happened. And yet, on the other hand, the idea of dark and light, which is when you look at the outpouring and the both the outpouring with respect to Notre Dame, but then also um, the three Louisiana churches that burned down when people saw the billion dollars have been raised for the rebuilding of Notre Dame. Um, GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. 